Hello, welcome back. Today, I'm very happy to be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Porman, an internal medicine doctor and addiction medicine fellow at the University of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Porman will help explain to us the stigma associated with addiction and ways we can help to reduce the stigma. Thank you, Dr. Porman, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great, let's get started. So what is stigma? You know, I mean, so stigma broadly, I would think about as negative preconceptions that people attach to certain disease states or um, certain ways of being in the world. I th- So that's kind of the traditional definition. I-, I was thinking about this question, though, and I think it's also helpful to think about stigma as a defense mechanism um, on the part of the person who has the stigma to sort of protect their worldview, right? So it's a lot easier to think that, okay, you know, people who are poor probably just don't work that hard, right? Because it's much more painful to think that you could work really hard and things could still not work out for you. And I think when it comes to addiction, it's a lot easier to think, well, people are choosing to use drugs as opposed to uh, they're in the grips of a very powerful brain disease that could also one day affect me, right? It's a way of separating yourself uh, from people that have qualities that scare you. Yeah, that's really interesting. So to kind of expand upon that, uh, where does stigma come from when we're referring to the addiction community? I think that stigma comes Uh, from a really deep-seated fear of the human psyche, which is that we don't always have control over our own actions. Uh, And I think that's particularly powerful in the American Western context when we think about we have a culture that's very individualistic that thinks, if I choose to do A or B and I put enough work into it, that's going to happen. And No matter how much evidence there is to the contrary, uh, having that myth that you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish is is kind of, you know, foundational to our cultural identity. Uh, So when you're confronted with uh, this very large group of, you know, illness states or I think of it as a disease state, although not everybody does. But when you're confronted with all this information and data that, you know, maybe that's not totally true then I think the defense mechanism, again, is the stigma uh, attached to, you know, drug use or addiction uh, or, you know, these these actions that we think, you know, the person really should just be able to stop. And so I think it's really that cultural thing. It does take on different flavors of, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's a religious explanation for not wanting to support somebody. Uh, you know, there could be a personal explanation, but I think it's really just that it's such a destabilizing idea that a human being could really, really want to change and not be able to do it on their own. Can you give us some examples of stigmatizing language when it comes to addiction? Uh, So there's a lot of stigmatizing language in addictions, and it's interesting there's not a great consensus about these things. So I'll give you some examples of language that I think is really important for clinicians. So counselors, physicians, nurses, uh, caseworkers to avoid. But at the same time, I don't police the language of patients, right? So patients can choose uh, whatever words that they feel are helpful in their recovery. Although sometimes we will talk about why they're choosing certain words. So 
abuse and abuser uh, are words that we really want to avoid. They're unfortunately incredibly common even in the addictions uh, literature. Uh, but we find that when you actually, there's actually been studied that if you use the word abuse or abuser instead of a person with a use disorder, that clinicians tend to view the person that they're describing in that way in a more negative light, that they tend to prescribe more punitive punishments, and that they have less empathy for the person that they're talking about. And this has actually been measured. There was one particular study uh, in 2010 in the International Journal of Drug Policy that looked at that, and that was the only thing they changed was use disorder versus abuser. So that's you know, clear, demonstrable evidence that we shouldn't be using that that language. Some other things that I avoid is dependence. And, you know, some of the people listening to this may have actually learned to talk about substance abuse or substance dependence. That's an old concept that was in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which actually looked at these things, which actually categorizes all these things so that, you know, doctors can agree upon like what meets a, a diagnosis definition. It hasn't been the current uh, definition uh, or the current like category since 2013, and yet it unfortunately continues to be taught in most medical schools. We also talk about the idea of like getting clean, and the problem is when you say like, oh, somebody's been clean for a few years or they're getting clean, is you're implying that people who are, who use drugs are dirty. Um, and, you know, I think it's easy to think about, like, why that could be a problem. But, you know, the other big category is just identifying people as their disease. So it's not a, a person who has an addiction, it's an addict. Or it's not a person who has injected drugs, it's, it's an IV drug user. And, you know, there's big range in who those people are. But when you use that kind of, you know, disease first as opposed to person first language, you're really reducing the person to an idea of what, you know, you think a drug user looks like. You alluded to this earlier by referencing the study, but can you expand upon how stigma affects people struggling with addiction? I would say that other than the lack of appropriate funding and, you know, appropriately appropriate uh, support services, that stigma is the number one killer of people who use drugs. People who use drugs are afraid to ask for help because they don't want to be labeled. They're afraid to ask for treatment sometimes because it's hard for them to think of taking a medication uh, for something instead of, you know, quote unquote, like toughing it out. Uh, So even that kind of like macho language. And then the other really big thing is there's a a lot of stigma in the healthcare community where we could be, you know, really helping people to get connected to care. And we're not uh, because we we can't let go of that idea that this person, you know, maybe doesn't have control over what they're using. And, you know, this kind of moralistic idea that if you use drugs, you're bad or you're making bad choices, right? So, I mean, so many people in America use drugs and, you know, they don't always look like that negative idea that you might have in your head of how they look. And it it is really disheartening, you know, as a clinician working with other clinicians to hear the really negative ways sometimes that people talk about that. Yeah. So what are some things that we can do to reduce stigma? I think uh, 
starting with the language is really important. And, you know, that's there are some studies that have, like I talked about, really shown that even if you just change the words that you use, it actually changes the treatments that you recommend for patients. So certainly changing the way that you think about that particular person. But I think, you know, the, the big thing for me, and it's sad that it took this, but the big thing for me was prescribing buprenorphine to patients with opioid use disorder and seeing them get better. Because I think there's really a sense when we think about addictions that these are things that are not going to improve, that they're uh, lifelong diseases. But a lot of people get better. A lot of people go into remission. Um, And not just with opioids, but with alcohol, with methamphetamine, with tobacco. So really changing the mindset about things being treatable, holding the hope for patients. And then, you know, kind of shifting your mindset of, I'm, that you're here to support somebody with an addiction as opposed to the idea that, you know, you're here to tell them what to do because that's really going to set you up for failure. The stigma in the public, I, I find it a much harder problem, but I think I do see there is some change happening. This seems to be largely generational that, you know, the younger you are, the less negative views you have about drug use, the less negative views you have about people who use drugs. Um, And so I think that there's a real opportunity there. But I think it is very tough to work on that messaging, to empower people, to talk about, you know, things can get better. Or even, you know, to another extreme, if you want to continue to use drugs, but do so in a way that's safe and it's not going to cause you, you know, irreversible harm. It's a it's a tough hill to climb, but I think it's it's really important and I wish that we're more central to the work of clinicians who work in substance use care. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Porman? Um I think you know, I just I really appreciate the conversation. I think uh you're, you know, focusing on stigma, you're 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 really uh hitting the nail on the head of kind of the center central problem that patients I th- I refer to them as patients <laughs> you know just because of my viewpoint but you know people who use drugs who want a safe supply of drugs right or maybe don't want to keep using drugs or maybe want to you know use less or they want to have more control over their use really you know that those those things should all be no brainers for those of us who bring that kind of attitude to other issues like high blood pressure or diabetes or, you know, other chronic diseases, but it's that stigma of, you know, if you do this, you're bad, or, you know, if you choose to use drugs or you have trouble controlling your use, then then you're just an addict, right? You're not a person with a problem that can be treated and, and can get better. So I really, I just really appreciate you, you focusing on that, on that part, but yeah. And I, and I'd actually really like to ask you some questions if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so I'm really intrigued by your project and by the questions that you've asked me, I can tell that, you know, this is a big um, interest for you. So I was wondering, you know, how you got interested in doing this podcast. So um, I first became interested in addiction because it's a growing problem and it affects people of all ages and from like all different walks of life. And as I continue to research it, many of the preconceived beliefs I've heard about why people use substances were proven to be very wrong. Like, for example, I might have initially thought that people who use substances, like, chose to do so, and I didn't perceive addiction as a disease or understand how controlling it can be. Mm. 
And I'm fascinated to learn more about how different substances affect the brain, how resources for treatment differ among various socioeconomic groups in different communities, and how current treatment and policy might be improved to prevent addiction and increase recovery rates and give people a chance to kind of regain control over their lives. Yeah, I think, you know, it's isn't it interesting that addiction in and of itself, right, the definition of it is loss of control, compulsion, and continued use in spite of negative consequences. So right in the definition of addiction, you have the loss of control. And yet it's so hard for us to wrap our heads around the idea that yeah. if you go to the store to buy a bottle of alcohol, is that really something in your control if you have a severe alcohol use disorder you know i would argue that that's not a voluntary action necessarily and that's that's really kind of mind blowing when you really sit with that with that thought so um it's it's so great that you're you're already you know starting to understand things that unfortunately took me a lot of my career in medicine to to really confront um and internalize and I was wondering, you know, actually, how how did you find my work? Because <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm like, I don't think I have like a big uh, audience of people your age. <laughs> so I was curious. Um, so uh, I was looking for addiction specialists and I came across your website and I was inspired by your dedication to provide ethical and compassionate care, even though you're operating in an imperfect medical system. And I also read many notes of appreciation from your colleagues about the actions you have taken to make changes in the way doctors practice medicine. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, I think uh, anybody who's worked with me knows that I have a lot of thoughts about how we can be doing things better. You know, that's sometimes hard to, to keep that passion and keep the energy going. But I think, you know, I just feel so lucky to be doing addiction medicine. I had a colleague, Massachusetts General Hospital, who's a, a fellow over there, um, she wrote a long <laughs> thread on Twitter about how she appreciates people saying things like, oh, wow, good for you that you're doing addiction medicine. Um, what a sacrifice. And, and how much she hates that because she loves what she does. It's not a sacrifice. It's a joy. And I completely agree with that. And I think that also, again, it, it taps into the stigma, uh, stigmatized idea of people who use drugs that they're unpleasant to be around or that you wouldn't want you wouldn't want to do this kind of work and that's exactly the opposite of what I've discovered in my practice so I I'm just I feel very fortunate that I kind of you know I'd always been interested in in drug use and interested in addictions but really to you know to spend some time training in that and uh you know to work with other people interested in that really just reinvigorated my my love of medicine and I was wondering, you know, those ideas that you had about drug use um, before you started looking into this, where do you feel like those ideas came from? Honestly, um, I'm not really sure if they came from any particular place. All the discourse around me about substance use all kind of reflected a negative opinion on people who did use substances. And I feel like those kind of beliefs are kind of internalized in our society by now. And it just kind of picked it up from really many different sources around me. It just seems to be the view of general society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just kind of like the the water that we swim in. Yeah, and that and that's yeah one of the reasons why it's it's really di um, difficult to dismantle it because it's you're right it comes from a lot of different sources. 
And I'm really interested in this idea of you're doing this podcast and you have uh, thoughts about how to, you know, reach people who are younger, who aren't necessarily, you know, in this field. And as I said, I think, you know, we don't necessarily think of that as part of our role in medicine to outreach to the public. But something that's very important to me, and I was wondering from you, Ahana, if you have ideas about how we could do a better job of changing public perception. Um, That's a really good question. So one possibility is for substance use specialists to maybe utilize more mainstream methods for communicating to the public. Like they could do interviews on news channels or talk shows or use social media outlets. And it might be important also maybe for specialists to engage with community leaders and help create a change in public health policy when it comes to addressing addiction. Did you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, th- I think that I really like the idea of community leaders because as I, you alluded to, there's a huge disparity um, in who gets uh, treatment. And a lot of that is, is easily mapped onto racial disparities, but also socioeconomic disparities, insurance issues. So definitely, I think thinking about, you know, how to engage community leaders. We've had, in this year, we have the most overdoses that this country has ever seen. And I think we're only sort of beginning to unpack what happened. But, you know, we're seeing jumps of 20, 50, 60 percent in different communities. And it's especially affecting uh, people who are Black and Latino, who have been historically very underserved by addiction medicine treatment. So um, I love that idea. I you know, I certainly use a lot of social media, but I, you know, I think um, you feel yourself kind of aging out of the the mental flexibility uh, needed to navigate it. And I and I also, you know, there you know, there's a lot of danger, right? So there's physicians who have done a great job of, for instance, spreading great information about COVID um, in the last year and a half, um, and then there's you know physicians who have kind of made a career out of misinformation, uh, frankly, about COVID. And so I, it's a potentially very powerful tool. I'm just like, you're, you're catching me at a time where I'm really uh, reevaluating and kind of rethinking what's the positive potential of this and what's the the negative potential of this, especially when uh, the companies want our attention. They don't really care about the message. Uh, whether it's accurate or not. Yeah, but I, I'd be curious if you if you felt like, are there like social media communities or um, campaigns or, you know, media that you've come across that you felt like really kind of helped you think through these issues? Well, um, definitely in my research, I came across official accounts as well as the accounts of people who struggled with addiction in the past, and they have tens of thousands of followers. So I think it's definitely a useful tool to make a large impact. But I agree that misinformation can also spread rapidly, so I think it's really a double-edged sword. Yeah, I mean you're 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 much younger than I am. You're like 20 years younger than I am. And so you've like I I um I was older than you when I really started using social media. Uh so I kind of approach it more as an adult. As somebody who's grown up with it, do you feel like it's been like, is it a thing that you eye with a lot of apprehension, or is it, like, kind of a natural part of your life? Um, because I grew up with it, it does feel like a natural part of my life. To be totally honest, 
I use it primarily for entertainment purposes and not really for information gathering, although I did use it in my research in this case. I feel like in f with frequent use, people become more adept at sorting true information from false claims. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I know we got a little off topic, but I, in some ways, like kind of the this is like the center of the talk on stigma because I, you know, really what what people are spending their their time on their attention on is you know TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and so that's Facebook. That's where we need to reach people. Clubhouse, I guess. Um, so that's you know that's where we need to reach people, and I sometimes, uh, or not sometimes, I'm often frustrated with um, how traditional medicine, traditional medical jobs really, really focus on academic articles, which are, don't get me wrong, very, very important. You know, if we talked about a few of them, uh, you know, just now, but they're, they're only important if you get people to read them. And they're only important if you can communicate well what the finding was, right? So I think, you know, social media is really underutilized probably because you know those of us who are making decisions in medicine you know didn't grow up with it and don't and aren't fluent in the language but you know maybe maybe that can change with all the caveats i said of of uh, you know the potential the potential dangers is something we're gonna have to grapple with yeah yeah definitely well i want to thank you again dr poorman for taking the time to share your knowledge and experience about this topic with us and i hope i can talk to you again soon I'd, I'd love that, Ahan. I think you have uh, such wonderful questions. And, uh, you know, this is the number one cause of preventable uh, morbidity and mortality. And so I'm very encouraged to, you know, connect with you and to hear these really um, insightful thoughts and, and your openness to learning more. Um, it's it's uh, really been a pleasure. So thank you for, for having me. Thank you again, Dr. Foreman. <laughs>